Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Ben. Welcome to Four Corners Church. You've joined us in the middle of a series called Seven. We're talking about the seven churches of Asia. Maybe you've never heard of them, but you can jump right in, even if this is your first week with us. If you have your Bible, you can turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We do those on the cell phones, if you'd like. They'll be on the screens. They're also in your message notes that look just like this right here. You can follow along there. Today, I'm going to talk with you about a church that had a problem. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little story. A few years ago, I was out in the lobby shaking hands with a handful of people, and somebody, I don't know who, got me sick. That happens a lot. I'll shake hands with somebody. Somebody's got germs. I scratched my eye. Next thing you know, I got sick. Well, I didn't really know how sick I was. I was feeling pretty good, and I like to kind of press through those things anyway. So I just kind of kept going, kept going, kept going. I knew I was a little run down, but I was managing. So the very next Sunday, evidently it happened again. I'm shaking hands with somebody, probably somebody over here, I'm assuming. This is the section it looks like it came from. Anyway, I'm shaking hands with somebody, and I get something else. And again, I feel really bad. So Monday, Tuesday, I'm resting, but I'm trying to power through. On, on Wednesday morning, um, I go into a, a coughing fit, and I start to stand up just so I can catch my breath, and I passed out. Never happened to me before. I fell, broke my face, like literally. So I used to look better, friends, honestly. Uh, I broke my face. I had carpet burns all over. And within a few minutes, I'm at the hospital. And uh, Turns out I had swine flu, bird flu, and some other kind of flu, like all at once, seriously. And so they put me in quarantine. Here's the thing. I didn't know that I was that sick. I just kind of kept going. I was unaware of really what was going on. And it wasn't until I fell down and then was diagnosed that I really understood what was going on. In fact, the nurses said to me, if you're like 20 years older, you might not survive this. This is a really big deal. But I didn't know it. And the church we're going to look at today, the one that Jesus writes a letter to, they have something going on and they don't know it. They've got, as it were, a virus and it's really impacting them. And Jesus is going to come along and he's going to write them a letter through the apostle John, like he has the other churches we've been studying. And he's going to talk to them with an incredible amount of candor, a lot of love. Today, when we look at this church, Pergamum. It's the city of Pergamum. It's located in Turkey, and you can go visit the ruins today. As we look at this church, we're going to find out a couple things. We're going to find out what's on the heart of Jesus for that church, but not just that church, for our church. And you know this, I hope, that the church is not really a building or an institution. It's a group of people. So when we say, what is the heart of Jesus for the church, what we're really saying is, what's the heart of Jesus for you? And today, you're going to get a snapshot of that. As we look at this one particular situation, there are going to be some things he says to them that really are broadly applicable to all of us. We're going to find out some of the good things he has to say, and we're going to find out some of the things that Jesus says we should be careful of. Diseases, as it were, that we might not even really be aware are circulating around us. And just in the kind of movements of people and just in your engagement in life, these things, if we're not careful, kind of get transmitted and you may not even know it's happening. In fact, these things that Jesus says are important should have our attention as followers of him. They're the kind of thing that if over time you don't pay attention to them, they actually cause you to fall flat on your face. And uh, that's why we're going to study it today. We're studying these letters to get Jesus' heart for the church historically, around the globe, but right here in this place. All right? So let's talk about this city Pergamum and why it is that John, the apostle, 
is transcribing a letter from Jesus to them. So here's our situation. John had been following Jesus in his life as a disciple. That's one of the people that came along. Jesus sat at his feet, listened to him talk. Jesus and John had a great relationship. So much so that when Jesus was on the cross, he looks at this guy, John, and he says, John, take care of my mom. Now, you don't have to know a lot about John to know that Jesus had a big place in his heart for this guy. Well, after Jesus dies and is resurrected and goes back up to heaven, he leaves his apostles, his disciples, like John, in charge of this growing movement called the church, his people who are going to spread his message of love and grace in the world. And John winds up responsible for a group of at least seven churches in what we now call Turkey, Asia Minor. He's the bishop, if you will, if you know that term, or the leader or the elder of those churches. But at this particular time, the movement of Christianity is at odds with the government of Rome. And so they've taken John because of his position and visibility and authority and impact. And they've transported him to a little island in the Mediterranean called Patmos. In fact, I have a map right up here on the screen for you of the area that we're talking about. Right up here are the seven churches. Last couple of weeks, we looked at group number one, Ephesus and Smyrna, and today we're on number three. And you can kind of see that there's that little black dot of Patmos where John is marooned. And Jesus shows up to him, the Bible says, and tells him to write letters to the seven churches. Now, these seven churches, uh, they kind of go up there like an ark. They're really the ancient mail route for Rome. Each one of these cities have unique history. There's a lot going on in them. For instance, Ephesus is a cultural city with lots of commerce. They're very wealthy. Smyrna is a little bit more on the back land, not quite as wealthy. And um, that church has a robust history. But Pergamum is known as, I think maybe in American terms, we'd call it like maybe the city of Austin or maybe Seattle, maybe Nashville, something like that. It was the place where kind of hipsters hung out just a little bit. Um, there wasn't much commerce there. Uh, they weren't really known for exporting goods out of the area. What they were known for was um, a robust arts program, huge amphitheater, lots of temples, lots of people coming there to learn. They had the second largest library in the ancient world. The first one was in Alexandria, Egypt. The second one, ho holding 200,000 parchments, is located in Pergamum. And in fact, I have a picture, if you'll show that up there, gentlemen, I have a picture here of what are the modern excavations. You see in the, uh, the kind of the foreground of the screen, there's an amphitheater. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But above it to the left, there is what is left of the ancient um, library at Pergamum, 200,000 parchments. Now, in fact, the word parchment and Pergamum are connected. They, a little bit of a you know, change over time, but the word pergamum literally means parchments. And that's where parchments were first developed. Before then, you had stone or you had papyrus, but writing on animal skins and rolling them up, that happens here first. That's what the city is known for. So people would come all over to be a part of the arts program. They'd wear their skinny jeans and their v-neck t-shirts. And nah, I'm kidding. They didn't do that, but whatever it looked like in the day, that's what was going on here. And everybody that was anybody made it through the city because of how artistic and um, enjoyable the place was. They had an incredible diversity of religious expression. There were temples all over the city, incredible temples. Well, one of the most famous temples 
has actually been removed from that area and has been rebuilt in a museum in Berlin. In fact, here's a picture of it. This is the Temple of Zeus rebuilt in the Pergamum Museum in Berlin. And there, there it is. And so there are actual pieces of the real one, and then they've reconstructed the rest they couldn't find. And you can go visit that today. This is going to show up in our text in a few minutes, so I wanted you to see it. Do you see how it's kind of shaped? You can kind of somewhat imagine it to be somewhat like a throne. The imagery here was is that Zeus would come down wherever he comes down from, and he would sit there. And the rest of the city kind of observed that that was the special place, and all the activities in the city surrounded that. It wasn't the only temple. There's about 12 temples in Pergamum. One of them was to Dionysius. He was connected with love and wine and all kinds of crazy making happened in, uh, in connection to him. In fact, his temple was located right next to the theater. So we'll go ahead and show you this picture again. It's a little bit better of that theater you saw earlier. Right next to that theater, that amphitheater, was the temple of Dionysius. And that's where... If you wanted to have a good Friday night and have a few random hookups and do it all and kind of get the favor of the gods while you kind of got your buzz on, that's where it happened. This was the party place. And people would come from all over the known world and they would hunker down there for a few days and satisfy every urge. And it was welcome there. In fact, it would get so crazy that the bottom of that amphitheater would fill up and people would gather on the seats to watch the activity down below. Uh, church growth, at least that kind of church growth back in the day, was very easy. It's much diff more difficult today. All right? And in this city with all these temples was a burgeoning little group of Christians. And Jesus loved them dearly. But they operated in an environment that was pretty hostile to the work of Jesus. First of all, there were competing ideologies. There were competing moral systems. Um, there was an incredible amount of tolerance so long as you didn't declare yours to be superior. In fact, the only one that could be superior, the only temple really that could be the most superior was the temple to Trajan. He was a Roman emperor and they used to worship those guys. They believed that either they were deity or they were connected so close to deity that if you worship them, you would get the favor of the deity upon you. And so Trajan's temple was the supreme temple there, even though Zeus's was more elaborate and probably had more adherence, the power behind Trajan's temple was as there was a slogan that had become quite popular in the Roman Empire that at the Trajan temple you were expected to utter if you went there to visit. And it was one of the ways you could prove both that you were religious, which was valued, and that you were a patriot. And the slogan was, Caesar is Lord. And that's all well and good until you're a Christian. Because for a Christian, there's only one Lord, only one king. In fact, he's the Lord of Lords and the king of kings, and they would never declare Caesar as Lord. So now they've got a problem because if they're interacting with people near Trajan's temple, and the expectation is as you get close, what you do is you take some of the best of the produce of the land and you, you give it in sacrifice and offering to the temple. You take some of the best of the meat that you have and you give it in offering and sacrifice to the temple. And in addition to that, you say the mantra, Caesar is Lord, and if you're a Christian, you can't do any of that. And this put them at odds with the empire. It put them at odds with the culture. It made them stand out as somewhat intolerant and unwilling to get along. It was perfectly legitimate to go to Trajan's temple one day, and Zeus is the next, and Dionysius is the next. And so that was all well and good, but Christians had a single allegiance. And they were having a rough time. 
Just a few years before this letter from Jesus is transcribed to John, one of the leaders of that church, his name is Antipas. We don't really know his entire role. But he loses his life for the faith in a horrific death. They put him inside of an iron-shaped bowl. They light a fire under it. And they effectively roast him alive. And the nostrils of the bull were open, as was the mouth, so that as the person inside was burning and they were screaming and they began to smoke, it would come out as if the bull was kind of breathing out of his nose and it would be yelling and and the distorted sounds of the torture happening in the inside would come out and the bull would almost take on life and people would gather around to worship. This is the way Antipas is said to have died, the leader of the early church that John, the apostle, had put in charge of that church. This is the background for the Pergamum church. And Jesus shows up to that church and he says, I want you to know some things. I want you to hear some things from my heart for you. And the the beautiful thing for us is, is we have that letter recorded for us right here. And like all the other letters that we've been looking at and the remaining few that we will look at, they're going to begin in about the same way. They're going to begin with a picture of Jesus. Each one of the letters to the seven churches, to the seven cities, begins with a unique picture of Jesus that speaks specifically to the situation that those people are in. And here's the point. Here's the point. The point is is that Jesus wants to show himself uniquely in that situation to give the people who are following him hope, to let them know his love for them, to let them know that he's in charge. So each letter is going to have a picture, and each one's unique, specific to those people. In each letter, Jesus is going to give some feedback. He's going to give a a job review to each church, and he's going to be pretty direct with it. And most of the churches who receive some job review from Jesus, there's some good things they do, and there's some things that need improvement, and that's going to be the case here. And finally, each letter, like this one here, is going to end with Jesus promising rewards for people who are faithful, who continue the fight, who don't give up, who persevere to the end. So with that said, you should be there in your Bible by now. Revelation is easy to find. It's near the end of your Bible. Go to the very end and go back a few pages to chapter 2. Revelation 2, verse 12. Here's what our Bible says. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write. So John's on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there. Jesus shows up and says to John, I want you to write a letter to the angel. In the Greek, angelos, it means messenger or minister. It can literally mean the heavenly beings. It can also be earthly people. So we don't really know which one he's talking about here. Many people say this is to the leaders of the church. Some people say no, it's just an acknowledgement of the spiritual realities that all the stuff that's going on in Jesus's words have both a physical expression and a spiritual. I'm not sure which it is. It doesn't really matter. The point is, is that Jesus is wanting to communicate and he's going to go right to the heart of the matter when he does. So to the angel at the church at Pergamum, right? And here's what Jesus has to say to them. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So the picture of Jesus in this letter that he's given this church that he wants them to see him as, is he's the one who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now in Pergamum's history, the imagery of the sharp sword's a big deal. That city was over its previous couple hundred years, the home seat of several powerful people as they were either rising to power or falling to power. Alexander the Great had a major victory in this city. And the sword was a symbol of that power. 
And to have a double-edged sword honed and sharpened on both edges was supreme power. You could work it in both directions. And the picture that Jesus is giving this church is, is, hey, I'm powerful. I've got power. I wield power. And he wants this church to see him as somebody who has the ability to tackle any obstacle because they were up against it. The city knew about power, but like I imagine a lot of us today, the Christians in that city, on occasion in the crush of life, as just things were happening, especially in an environment of persecution, I bet you they had questions that I, like I've had on occasion when my life, far from persecution, but it just got difficult, where I begin to wonder if Jesus really has power, and if he does, would he actually use it to help me? So part of what I want you to reflect on before we get to the body of what we're talking about, what I want you to reflect on is, is that Jesus really has power. I don't know if you've thought about that before. Let, let me just kind of draw it out for you for a second. Did you know that in this room there are marriages that were headed for destruction, but the power of Jesus involved in people's open and willing hearts changed the trajectory of marriages? And literally in this room, the power of Jesus has sa- saved marriages? Did you? Did you know that? It happened. Did you know in this room, this is going to wake some of you out, in this room there are some people who are facing some physical obstacles and they prayed, just like the Bible says, if any of them among you are sick, let them call the elders of the church, they'll lay hands on them, anoint them with oil. They did that. And the power of Jesus showed up and the physical condition they had got better. That's true in this room. Now, not everybody who prays, but that's happened to people in this room. There were people who were so hurt and wounded by what happened to them, legitimately hurt and wounded, that they were not on their own able to get over, step over, and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and move on with life. But they gave the issue over to Jesus, and he showed up in power greater than those events that happened to them, and it literally broke the bondages in their life because he demonstrated he is more powerful than that stuff that happened to them. That's true for people right here in this room. I mean, this is not something that happened around the world. That's true right here in this room. In my own life, I get expressed in a lot of ways, but today I'm reminded that there was a time when I had no power at all to separate myself from the consequences of sin in my life. I could not do it. I could not be good enough. I couldn't learn enough. I tried both of those, was incapable. Those pathways I didn't have power, or, and also those pathways were incapable of, of freeing me from the consequences of my own sin. But in power, Jesus came and brought to me a gift I could not earn on my own. And that's true for a lot of people in this room. When Jesus comes to us, a lot of times what he has to remind us and what he wants us to see is that he is bigger than anything else we're facing. It sounds simple, Right? Until you're facing something that's huge. Until it's been going on for a long time. And then sometimes even the most faithful followers of Jesus begin to lose sight of just how powerful and sovereign and in control our God is. He comes to this church and he says, here's here's what I want you to know about me. I wield a double-edged sword. I can take care of business. There is no obstacle. There is no foe greater. I can do it. 
And then look what he said. Not only am I powerful, I like this next thing. He says, I know where you live, uh, where Satan has his throne. That, by the way, most scholars believe is in reference to Zeus's temple, where it kind of looks like a big chair where Zeus could have his arms out. It, most scholars believe that Jesus is saying, you're kind of there where everybody knows where one of the most ornate temples in all the Roman Empire is located, the temple of Satan or Zeus. But that's not the phrase for us to focus on. The phrase for us to focus on is Jesus says, I'm powerful. And look at this next one. He says, and I know you. I'm powerful, and I know you. I rule the universe, but I know exactly where you are. I'm very big and very up there, but I'm right here and close to. Theologians who study the nature of God, they talk about God's transcendence. That he's so big, can't fathom him. And he's so imminent or close, he's intimately connected. This is what separates the Christian God from many other gods and other religions. Without going down the whole list of them, just in general terms, some gods are big and powerful in the belief system of that religion, but they're not really close. They kind of got involved, set some rules, and... And now you just you you obey the rules, but he's not really there. And when you pray, you're not so much praying to get him to change things as you're praying to make sure he's okay with you. In Christianity, we're encouraged to talk to a God who knows our situation, and we're encouraged to pray as if our prayers literally can make a difference in our daily lives, that they can literally change things. He's transcendent and imminent. He wields a sword. And he knows where we live. And look what he says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And yet in that kind of an environment, in that hostile environment, you remain true to my name. So now he's going through the job description. Here's a good point. You remain true to my name even in a hostile environment. In a world that doesn't value what I value, that doesn't believe what I believe, you have held true. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, remember him in the bull, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city and again where Satan lives. <laughs> Jesus doesn't, you know, mince any words. He doesn't like the value system alive and well in Pergamum, but he loves this church and he loves the potential in that church and he wants them to see that no matter what else is going around them, he knows what's going on and he's bigger than what's going on. Now, here, here's the thing, friends. This document's a couple thousand years old. We're learning some history here, but this is more than a history lesson. This is the heart of Jesus for his church, which is not an institution or a building. It's the heart of Jesus for his people. He is bigger than what you're facing. And he knows what you're facing. He knows where you live. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He's in command and control of the situation. But not as a detached warrior, but as an up-close and personal friend. He has the ability to do both at the same time. And the reason I'm spending so much time here is I believe one of the key points in all of the messages that Jesus is going to dictate through John to these churches is, is he's saying to the churches, I want you to see me. 
It's almost as if Jesus is believing or operating with the belief that if we could really see him, it would change something. This is what Pastor Will a moment ago was trying to get to when he was saying that Moses says to God, just show me your glory. Let me see you. There's something powerful about seeing God as he is, understanding who really Jesus is. All the dead theologians that I read, they make a big point about the fact that if we could really see God as he is, everything else takes its right perspective. That's why in our church we spend so much time doing uh, musical worship. Because we want to sing about a God that's big. We want to lift our eyes and get the right perspective. We want the world that we're operating in to be right-sized. And the quickest and best way to understand the size and scope of your problems, the quickest and best ways is not to focus on your problems. It's to focus on the God that is bigger than. It's hard to do sometimes. I'm imagining it was hard for the church at Pergamum, but somehow they were able to persevere. And in a world of persecution where one of their leaders was literally roasted alive, they stayed true to the faith. I think they were able to do it in part because they had a clear picture of Jesus. So Jesus gives his job review, and like every good manager, he starts with the good stuff. But the next verse takes a turn. Here's what our Bible says, verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You know, I don't, I don't know what you think about Jesus. I, I don't know if, like, your familiarity with Jesus is what you've heard other people say. I, I don't know maybe if you were in a church that kind of painted a picture of Jesus in one direction, kind of, you know, monodimensional. I, I, I don't know. But one thing's clear to me is if you read Scripture enough, like, just a few chapters a day for a month or two, kind of hang out in the New Testament, you begin to see this multifaceted Jesus, incredibly diverse range of emotions and, and abilities to express himself. Not one or two priorities, but it seems like several things rise to the surface as important to him. And he's a complex dude. This is the God who calls us to follow him. And the reason I'm explaining that to you is because the next few words of Jesus, if you're not careful, depending on your background, what you think, what you've been exposed to, you're going to hear these as harsh or mean or judgmental or coming from an, from an ugly, dark place. But that's not at all what's about to happen. Let's just talk about Jesus through the lens of a manager, if these are job descriptions. A good manager, you know what a good manager does. They give you both the positive feedback, but every good manager gives the negative feedback too, don't they? I mean, isn't it better to know where you stand with your boss? You can only do that if there's some transparency in the communication. So is that being harsh and ugly, or is that just good management? So Jesus is going to say some stuff that's going to sting. Here's the question you have to answer for yourself. Is he doing that because he's a judgmental jerk? and a cosmic killjoy? Or is he doing this because he has information that he believes the people he cares about needs to know? And if they know it, it might help them. It might actually be good for them. You, you get to decide that about Jesus. This is one of the key questions in our culture. What is the nature of Jesus? Is he good or not? Is he really at the core good 
as a church, we believe he is. And so we sing songs all the time about our good father and Lord, you're good. And the reason we do that is because I believe one of the fundamental misperceptions of Jesus in our culture today, maybe you have it, is that Jesus is good sometimes, but other times you really don't know where he's coming from. So we're going to read some words that because of the culture we live in and we're not used sometimes to direct feedback, it's going to sound a little harsh, but they're not harsh. They come from a loving father. That's another way to see him talking here. Who's saying to the people he cares for, you need to know some things because if you don't know them, it's going to hurt you. And I'm going to give you the true feedback. So here's what Jesus says. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We'll get to that word in a second. Who taught Balak. I love Bible names. Balaam and Balak. Twins. They're, they're not. but it, they had not, I don't know why I said that. Balaam and Balak. All right. And they're going to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Now, in the culture of Pergamum, Pergamum sexual, what the Christians would call sexual immorality wasn't to the Pergamum people, immoral. That was perfectly normal to hook up as you were celebrating near the amphitheater in the temple of Dionysius. It was perfectly normal to hang out, hook up, get drunk, do it again. People traveled all over from the world to do that. But for the Christians, that kind of behavior doesn't fit the life that Jesus has called his followers to. So in writing to the letter, John is told by Jesus to tell Pergamum, some of you, you've been enticed by what's going on in the culture. And some of what's going on outside the church has crept in into the church. And because most of the early Christians had Jewish backgrounds, when Jesus is giving the words to John and he says, Balaam and Balak, they know that story. We don't. Let me give it to you in a minute. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. That meant he received words from God and he would give direction sometimes to people in authority, sometimes the people who weren't in authority, and he was a part of what was called the school of the prophets, or at least the beginnings of it. And what was interesting about Balaam is he wasn't particularly Jewish. In fact, it doesn't look like he was Jewish at all, but he had authority to speak as a prophet within that Jewish community of the Old Testament of his time. And there was this other guy, Balak, from a neighboring country, Moab, and at certain times Moab and Israel are friends, and other times they're fighting. At this particular time, they're fighting. And Balak wants to defeat Israel. So he goes to the prophet and says, put a curse, sends a messenger to the prophet and says, put a curse on Israel so when I fight I can win. And I'll give you some money. And um, Balaam's like, sounds good to me. So he gets on his donkey and he starts down the road. He's going to get to Balak. He's going to prophesy for money, which is just strange. It's very weird. It just proves that religious stuff can get hokey and weird throughout time in history. And so as he's going, the donkey stops in the road. And Balaam starts spanking the donkey, whipping him, you know. Come on, go, go, go. And then the donkey talks and says, why are you beating me? There's an angel with the sword in front of us. And if I go forward, you're going to die. And the Lord opens Balaam's eyes. He sees it. He's repentant. He chooses not to go down to, to Balak. And I'm not sure if this is appropriate or not, but what strikes me is as Jesus, or at least the Lord on that day, um, speaks through an ass, and I'm pretty sure he's done it multiple times since. I don't know about you, just a little hunch I have about that. 
Later on, Balak calls Balaam again and says, hey, I still want to work at Moab uh, to defeat Israel. And Balaam says, look, you don't need to go to war. Here's all you need to do. And here's, here's where it comes into our text. What you need to do is you need to get them to act not as Israelites, but to act like everybody around them. Get them to sacrifice to other gods. Let them still sacrifice to their God, but sacrifice to other gods. And then get them to get involved in sexual immorality. And if you do that, they'll defeat themselves from the inside. They'll lose their national identity. And you won't have to fight them. You can just walk in and take over. That's the teaching that's being referred to here. It's ancient, but there's, without like me drawing this out, there's a lot of parallels here. So again, the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. So they ate food sacrificed to idols. That's that, here's our prime choices, pieces of meat. We're going to give a portion of it to the idol. We're going to eat the rest. And if the portion we give away, that, that's blessed. It blesses the whole thing. We have grain that we've taken in. We're going to give the first part, the best part, to the, to the worship of that deity we're trying to satisfy. The rest will be blessed. That was the mentality here. That's the food sacrifice to idol thing. And to commit sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Again, just a group who are very loose in their sexual practices. Here's what Jesus says. He says, repent, therefore. So you're bringing in the culture from the outside. You're compromising the fidelity of your worship. You're blending it with other stuff. One of the particular ways it's showing up is in sexual immorality. And then Jesus gives a word that we use in church, not in many other places, but historically this was not a religious term. He says repent, and I'm just going to just define it for you. You're going towards the culture of the world. You're going towards the morality of the world. You need to stop, turn around, and come back to the values that you first committed to. Repentance sometimes is accompanied by emotion. Sometimes there's a sense of regret. Sometimes there's just a sense, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn. And there's a decision to turn and the action of turning back to values that you've wandered away from. When we repent to the Lord of our sins, we're turning back to our Father who has redeemed us through Christ. Christ's death and resurrection. We're turning towards Jesus. He says, repent, therefore. Otherwise, otherwise, I'll soon come to you and I'll fight against him with the sword of my mouth. There's that sword again. I'm going to use my words. Now, some of you grew up in churches and you know that the word is both Jesus. He's the word. In Greek, he's the logos. But it also, in a larger context, speaks to the Word of God. We call it the Bible, but the Word of God. And God's going to use the Word of God to come and do its surgery with the double-edged sword in his people. It doesn't sound like a pleasant experience, unless, of course, you see the surgery that he's doing, the cutting he's doing with the sword of his Word, unless you see it as him cutting out cancer. When you see him as cutting out cancer, then it's a welcomed operation, if you see him as bringing harshness to people who are just satisfying their urges, you get a completely different perspective. It comes back to, how do you see Jesus? Is he good? Is he really good? And if so, then when he speaks his words, even when they cut us, they are for our good. We may not like them. 
but they're for us. Look at these next words. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is why this is not a letter just to Pergamum. This is a letter to every Christian. We're invited here in this letter as followers of Jesus 2,000 years later to listen with our physical but also our spiritual ears what the Spirit of God might be wanting to say to us today. In fact, I just want to be explicit about that. You have an opportunity right now to open your heart and mind to the very powerful Spirit of God who knows exactly where you're living. And to hear him say a couple things. I am powerful. I do know you. I know what's going on. You are not alone. I'm with you. And I love how you're persisting. Some of you need to know that the Father in heaven, your heavenly Father, loves how you are persisting in your faith even when it's not been easy. He's proud of you as you push through. Yeah, your challenges look different than Pergamum, but you have yours, and you're pushing, you're, you're pushing through, and he's proud of you. And others, quite transparently, just the text demands that I say this. Others of us would have to be honest and say, if the Spirit were speaking to me, and I'm listening, here's what he's saying. There's compromise in my life. I've let the culture in, and I know better. Specifically, I'm talking right now to people who've been around church for a while. And you know the value systems of God. In our church, we're blessed to have a spectrum of people who are at all levels of spiritual development. And so like some, for some of you, what I'm saying is brand new. And so like it's for you, but I'm not really talking to you right now, all right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And when I say you've like compromised, and even when I say that, you have one of two reactions. There's an inside Yes, that's true for me. Or there's a resistance to me saying it. And you have an opportunity to just receive the word of the Lord. Some of us, in keeping with the explicit teaching of this passage, we have flirted with the world's definition of sexual morality. And we haven't held tight to the definition of Jesus and the scripture for followers of Jesus. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you're free to ignore what I'm saying. But if you claim the name of Christ, you are not free to ignore this because it's not me talking. The scriptural, biblical, Jesus-honoring ethic with sexual behavior is one man, one woman in a covenant of marriage for a lifetime. That's a high standard. There's also grace for those of us that haven't lived up to that. But we're not supposed to be casual about it. We're supposed to repent and turn back. Jesus says, if you have ears to hear what the Spirit says, and you're victorious. He says, to the one who is victorious, I'll give him some hidden manna. I'm going to nourish his soul. I'm going to nourish her soul. I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. In Pergamum, the stone had a grayish color to it. So on the best temples like Zeus, it was prized to have the whitest marble. Only the best places got it. Most places, the only white marble they could get was a little moniker sign identifying what the building was. Only the biggest temples, only the emperor's temples and Zeus's temple got the pure white marble. Everybody else had kind of the grayish black, but every home wanted one marker. 
made of white marble that would identify them. And it would stand out against the grayish black. This is this building. This is so-and-so's house. It had a name and an identifier on it. And Jesus says, in keeping with that white monikering system that was all throughout Pergamum, if you come to me and you're faithful, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a white tablet with a name known only to you. There were people in this room who had a name before Jesus. It was bound. And after Jesus, your name became freedom. There are people in this room who had a name before Jesus. It was shame. And after Jesus, it was bold. There are people in this room who had a name before Jesus, and it was fear. And after Jesus, your name has become peace. I don't know your name, but Jesus does, and yours is unique to you. And the way you get it is, is you stay with him. I don't know all the ways to do that, but let me just give you a little illustration here. When the Lord made the world, he made it beautiful. It was pure. It was awesome. Seven times in the book of Genesis, he says it was good. And when he created human beings, he says it was very good. And yet this world we live in was marred by sin. So what I have is this awesome world that God created and this awesome uh, dirt here that uh, came into our world and messed some stuff up. This is really good dirt, by the way. Um, it's got poo in it. And so it's, uh, it's really great dirt. You can grow a lot of stuff in here. And um, it's kind of disgusting. So, like, the water before, anybody would drink it, right? But now most of us wouldn't. There are a few people who might would for enough money. I don't know. But this is the world we live in. It's, there's still a lot of good stuff there. This past month, my wife and I went on vacation. We saw so much of God's creation in the, you know, around Yellowstone and that stuff. Had a great time. I was just almost around every corner just awed by God's goodness. And yet everywhere we looked, there were some markers of the brokenness of the world as well. That's the world we live in. It's good, but you don't really want to drink at all. A few years ago, last year, in fact, I went with uh, one of our pastors and my kids to India and went to visit our orphanage and our church planning ministry there. And that's one of the things I'm most proud about for this church is your generosity to the fatherless and the orphan. And so I bought this thing. I didn't, I'd never heard of them. It's called a life straw. They're really awesome, by the way. And I took it to India because evidently if you drink the water there, you, well, let's just say you spend a lot of time in the bathroom. That's all I'm going to say about that. Back to the poo. So you buy this life straw and you carry it with you. And I carried one with me everywhere I went because we were in places sometimes where we didn't have filtered water, bottled water. And so no matter what the water, you can put this in the water and pretty much you can drink it. I mean, that's what it's for. It's a pretty expensive little device. But what it does is it filters out the impurities, and it lets the good stuff through, keeps the bad stuff at bay. And uh, I had it with me at all times until this one time I didn't, and that's the very time little precious saint of God gave me the best she had in her house, which was a little cup of cold water. And I'm stuck. I don't want to be rude. So I prayed, dear Jesus, like quietly to myself, God, don't let it kill me. And I bottomed up. I was fine. I didn't get sick. The Bible says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, which means I'm a pretty, man, pretty good man of faith and power is what that means. But anyway, bottom line, here's the poo water. And uh, 
The thing about the life straw is, is it doesn't matter how dirty the water is, you can pretty much put it in, and you can drink it, and none of the crap comes through. So it's just like sincerely, like it, it doesn't, it just works. Lightest hint of poo. I'm just, <laughs> I'm kidding. It tastes fine. I'd never drink that water unless it were filtered. We're called to live in a world that if you don't filter it, it will infiltrate you. And the weapons we've been given is a clear picture of Jesus. I want to encourage you to sharpen your image of him. Another clear tool we've been given, the clearest picture of Jesus is found. This is just a representation of God's word. It can be on your phone. It's often in your message notes. The Bible talks about hiding his word in your heart. There's a handful of tools that God has given us by which we can live in a world that is pervasive. We're surrounded by it. It has the stench of hell in it. And yet it doesn't have to touch us fully. We, we can literally be in this world, but not of this world. That was what was wrong with Pergamum. They were beginning to be both in the world and of the world. The distinction between the church and the world wasn't visible. In their case, it was their religious practices were getting obscured. They were kind of a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of that, a little bit of this too. And particularly in their sexual morality. But there's a whole host of things the Lord Jesus calls us to. That his values stand in stark contrast to the values of the world. And if you're not his disciple, you're free to ignore him. But if you are his disciple, you're not free to ignore him. You're called literally to repent and run back to him. Let's fill in a couple blanks and then... We'll pray. So just so you have some notes to take home with you. The word of God is the double-edged sword. It reveals the true nature of things. The word of God. That's the double-edged sword. The Bible says of the word of God that it cuts to the deepest part of our being, dividing soul and spirit, the deepest part of you. That's the power of the word of God received. Two words here. Idolatry and immorality are two areas the church at Pergamum allowed to invade their beliefs and practices. Let's talk about those two words for a second. Idolatry is giving anything more prominent, significance, or importance than devotion to Jesus. One of my favorite authors in the top five, Tim Keller, says, The human heart is an idol-making factory. Anything can become an idol. Good things. I've known parents, please just give me a little grace here. I've known parents who prayed for children to adopt or have a child, and the Lord blesses them and it happens. And I'm not just about the, like, the normal adjustments that come with being a new mom or a new dad. That's not what I'm talking about. That's normal. There's always a change in lifestyle and pace. But almost as if that kid becomes the the total object of their affection. And the very God that they prayed to, to have that child in their life, no longer seems to be an active part of the family's life. The kid's a wonderful gift, special. But if the value that the parents put on it and how they express that value 
needs some adjustment. Anything can be an idol. What's taking the place of Jesus? Where that's happening, that's where compromise is beginning to come in. On the other hand, immorality, that's your next blank, it, it, it involves sexual activity that goes beyond what God intended for human relationships. It is usually built on a belief that says somehow God is withholding from you, so go find more. You're entitled to it. So the man says, my wife is not sexually available to me in the way that I would like. I'm now free to go over here and express myself in other ways. And Jesus says, no, you're not allowed to do that. And if that's where you're where you are, repent and come back to him. Next blank. Your identity as a human being, as a person at your deepest level, is tied to Jesus' identity. That's why a clearer picture of him helps you understand you better. Notice, I'm the one with the double-edged sword, Jesus says, and I'm going to give you a name that is unique for you. They're connected. Every teller at a bank that's been there for any length of time, they know the way to, to identify counterfeit bills, the best way to spot a counterfeit is the blank, is to study the real thing. And if you're wondering if that thing is from Jesus or not, the best way to know is to fall more in love with him, spend more time discovering him, spend more time in the word. And when you do that stuff, the radar you have to understand the lies being offered to you as counterfeit as a propped-up idol, become easier for you to spot. Some churches are so busy preaching against stuff that they don't hold up an accurate picture of Jesus. The truth is, as if Jesus were fully seen by you, you, very, you don't need many people to tell you what not to do. Most of us need less sin management and more a picture of who Jesus is in his glory and in his power in our lives. The final blank. Who I am in Christ is one of the most important conversations you can have with yourself. So let me ask you, what is the name Jesus has given you? Or to say it another way, who are you really now that Christ is in your life? Do you know it? If not, start getting to know him more. Filter out some of the influences of the culture that are blocking your ability to see him and see yourself as he's made you. And grab on to that name he's given you, forgiven, free, bold, on purpose, called, significant, prominent. These are names God speaks into our lives. Literally world changer. And if not world changer, probably in one real sense, very much a world changer. We just don't think of it this way home changer, child changer, discipler. What is the name he's given you? Well, around here, when we talk about these kinds of things, we don't want to just be stirred. We want to take an action step. Would you grab out your connect card? And let's actually see if we can't put a few of these things into action. Next step A for us every week, and maybe this is where you are right now, says today I want to make Jesus or I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. It's to see him as he is, the one who gave his life on a cross and resurrected from a tomb. And it's to put your trust only in his work, 
on the cross and in the resurrection, only in his work, to put your trust in that, to secure your relationship to your heavenly father. The Bible says it very plainly that you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, and you have no ability to save yourself. You can't. I couldn't. It's only the shed blood of Jesus and the empty tomb that allows us to have a relationship with our creator. So next step A gives you a chance to take that pen and check the box and then pray with me in a moment and ask God to forgive your sin and make you his child and bring you fully into his family. And then you'll put the card in the offering bucket and we'll communicate with you this week about it. Next step B says, today I'm choosing to be baptized. Our next baptism is August 5th. One service, 10 o'clock, big baptism celebration afterwards. You're going to love it. You check the box. That's how you begin the conversation. The next step C, you know how much we love honesty around here. Here's what it says. You don't have to tell me the details, but it says, compromise has marked my walk with Christ and I'm repenting and returning to him. If you check that, the prayer team, the staff and I will pray for you this week. We don't want to know your business. If you want to tell us, write it down. We'll keep it confidential, but we don't need to know your business. But if you felt the prompting of the Lord's spirit when we talked about compromise, don't leave here without doing business with God. Get it right. Repent, turn, run back to him. Next step D says, Ben, would you pray with me to hold on to and to walk in my new name? Like maybe you have a glimpse, but it, it's, it's hard to hold on to. Why don't we just pray about it and say, God, secure who you are in, in Christ in your mind. Fix it. And if some of the things we talked about today could help you insulating yourself from the world, having a filter, focusing on the greatness and the grandeur of Jesus, take those things to heart, spending time in the word of God, and see if God doesn't use those tools to help you walk more boldly in who he's called you to be. And then finally, next step, he says, would you pray for our work in India? We have a trip coming up. Some of the pastors and I and a couple of our congregation are going over to visit our orphanage, and we're going to walk into the jungle area and do some ministry. And here's the truth, friends. I mean, we're just tourists unless the Holy Spirit is with us. So we can't do anything unless God's there with us. I wouldn't want to. So we need your prayers to go with us. You've sent your money. You've sent your gifts. You've sent your goodwill. But the truth is, is we need your prayers because we're excited about the ministry we're going to do over there. And we'll come home and bring a report of all the good things God's doing. So why don't you set aside your Connect card for a moment. You call this church home. It's your opportunity to give back a portion of what God has blessed you with. I wanted to show you a picture and just remind you what your dollars and pennies can do. So up here on the screen, this is our orphanage coming up. Yep, there we go. There's a handful of the girls that every meal they eat, all the clothing they wear, their education, their housing, safety, and security is paid for by this church. It's pretty amazing what you do. And at Christmas, you agreed to pay money to fix that gray roof back there. And uh, it has uh, not met code and... So we're on target. We'll bring you back pictures of that. You're also developing a boys' home. When we're done, we'll have 100 people on this campus that you've built. It's going to be amazing. That's what dollars and pennies do. And so while we're finishing our kids' construction over here, we're also literally around the world caring for the fatherless, fatherless and widows. And I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Let's pray about our next steps and our offering. Lord, you're good. You really are. There's no counterfeit that this world can offer that stands in your place. I pray, Father, that you would give an, us an image of your son, that our sight of him would overwhelm us, that his glory would fill our hearts. 
and it would crowd out every competing value, every lie of the enemy, every idol that we have built up. Lord, I pray with boldness for those men and women in the room right now who are your children and they are being called by your spirit to repent and to turn back and go back to the place of their first love. Lord, I lift up the men and women in this room who are declaring right now, Jesus, I cannot save myself. I trust only in your shed blood and in your resurrection as the vehicle by which I can have a relationship with my creator. Save me. Wash away my sins. Father, as we take our next bold steps as a congregation, would you help our journeys to go farther than we could ever go on our own? Would you empower us, anoint us, energize us to walk where you're calling us to walk, to be the church, to be in the world but not of the world? And would you take our dollars and pennies and would you maximize them for your glory? We pray all this in the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.